Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I am so thankful that you're here this morning to worship with us. Fathers, ladies, every single, every single one of you, thank you for being here today. I wanna ask if you would today to take God's word and open it with me to Matthew chapter 18 for this morning's message and for our time together here today. You know, it'd be very appropriate, of course, on any day to be looking at this pastor's scripture, but especially on a day like Father's Day, I think it is extremely beneficial for us to hear and learn what it is that God wants us to hear and to learn. We've been in a short sermon series here called Instructions Included, which is largely birthed out of the fact that when it comes to raising children, the fact of the matter is children don't come with an instruction manual. And yet God in his word has given us all the instructions, the guidelines, the wisdom, the principles, the truths that we need so that we might raise children well for the glory of God. But as we see in Matthew chapter 18, the direct context is not merely only in reference to children. God has much to say about the way that we live our life and specifically the way that we encourage and minister to younger believers. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has largely speaking about our care for and our treatment of younger followers of Christ. But to illustrate that, he uses the powerful illustration of a child. Before we read God's word this morning, I want to begin with a question and an illustration. Here's the question that I want you to consider in our time together today. It's simple, but potentially profound. And that is this. In your life, through your lifestyle, are you providing stepping stones of growth or stumbling blocks for those who come behind you? In your life, are you living in such a way that your life is a series of stepping stones leading to growth for those who follow you, or is your life filled with stumbling blocks? Let me give an illustration of that. A few years ago now, it was about three years ago to be specific, before the pandemic began, I was asked to lead worship for a pastoral gathering in Richmond. I knew that this gathering takes place. I've been a part of this gathering on many occasions and I knew it was a smaller, more intimate environment. There was gonna be in the room somewhere between 30 and 50 pastors and ministry leaders across the state. I was also informed in leading worship that any instrumentalist that I would like to bring along with me could come along with me. And so my very first thought was, you know what? Mac has really grown on the guitar. He's now right around 15 years old. And this conference happens within two days of his 15th birthday. He's the perfect choice to come and play an instrument as I lead worship. And so I asked Mac and he said, absolutely. I said, well, bud, this is gonna be awesome. You're gonna hang out with me at this pastor's conference. You're gonna get to know some of the people that I know. But then somewhere along the way, we're gonna slip away and go get a steak and get a movie. He's like, dad, I'm in. I am totally in, you know? And so that's what we did. We went to this pastor's conference, had a wonderful time and we led worship together. And yes, we did get a nice steak and we got a movie somewhere in the course of those few days. But during the midst of that conference, there were several sessions of Bible study and conversation and discussion and decision-making. And in between those sessions, there would be about a 10-minute break for people to get up and stretch their legs and get some snacks and go to the restroom and get some snacks and have conversation and get some snacks. Pastors have lots of food is what I'm saying. And so in these breaks, 
Mac was getting to talk to these guys that I consider friends. He's getting to know several of the people that he's heard me talk about through the years. And one of the guys who is known primarily for his one-liners came up to Mac to encourage him. And he patted Mac on the back and he's like, man, I so enjoyed this and I enjoyed this about you and so thankful that you're here. And then he patted Mac on the back and he said this. He said, I want you to remember something, Mac. He said, never forget this. Here's the statement. Never forget that your dad's ceiling is your floor. And Mac was like, okay. <laughs> he said it again for him. Oh, don't ever forget, your dad's ceiling is your floor. In fact, he even clarified, it's your ground level. Mac was kind and respectful. He said, thank you so much. And he smiled and went about his business. And we had several more hours of the conference. And finally we left, we got in the car to drive back here. And Mac was like, dad, I have a question. I said, okay. He said, I said, what's the question? He said, this pastor told me my dad's ceiling was my floor, but I have no idea what that, what is he talking about? I was like, well, son, I want you to know there's good news. This does not mean that we're going into the roofing and flooring business because we will totally go broke, okay? I can't get anything square to save my life. Actually, son, what I think he was saying was this. If you listen to your dad's instructions and follow his example, it will lead to growth in your life and you will grow and you will go further than he ever did. Mac was like, wow, that's pretty good. Mac in that moment began to begin the process, and honestly, it's been interesting to see our relationship of the last three years especially, because what he was realizing in that moment was, man, that's a true thing. Like my dad's life can be a stepping stone for me to grow further with the Lord, but also go further for his glory and purposes. But what Mac didn't realize in that moment was that statement spoke equally significantly to me. Because it said to me as a reminder, listen, Matthew, that's not automatic, that you've got to be intentional in that. You've got to be deliberate in that. So what are you doing in your life? And what are you doing in your example? And what are you doing with your instruction? And what are you doing with your, with your consistency in life? What are you doing that is helping your children grow instead of being hindered? I think God has much to say for us, especially as dads, but really to all of us in the body of Christ about our care for and our ministry to those that are coming behind us. And I believe we see that in Matthew chapter 18. I wanna to preach to you this morning on the subject, building up children in the Lord. And before you check out and say, wait a second, well, I'm not a dad, I'm not a parent, this doesn't apply to me. Remember, the context of this is speaking of all who are younger, weaker brothers and sisters in Christ because every single one of us in the body of Christ have a calling and a responsibility responsibility for how we live and how we care for those who are coming behind us. If you're physically able to do so, will you please stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Interesting question. He called a child to himself and he set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now listen to the transition here. But here comes a word of warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is a politically correct statement, right? 
Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot calls you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye calls you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Building up children in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done and what you're doing. And we ask you to move and work and speak in our hearts and lives today. Please give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see and hearts to respond with surrender and obedience to your leading. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. you may be seated. There is much here in these verses of scripture that we need to understand today about building up younger believers and building up children in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe if you could kind of pare it down, there's four primary words of instruction and exhortation in this pastor scripture that we need to hear today. Number one, if we're going to build up children in the Lord, we must abstain from a selfish focus. We must abstain from a selfish focus. The Bible tells us loud and clear that the disciples came to Jesus in this moment with a question. It seems simple, and yet in the simplicity, it shows us what their focus was in the moment. The question is this, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, who is it? Which one of us, which one will you choose to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Loud and clear in this question, we see many things, but one of the primary things we see is, frankly, their focus on self. Please understand, this reality that God calls us to abstain from living a selfish life goes completely against the ways of the world in which we live. The world in which we live today, the culture in our society will literally say to you, do what you want, be who you want, live how you want. After all, you are your own God. You just do you. After all, you deserve it. After all, you earn it. After all, you answer to no one. Life is all about your wants, desires, and preferences. The world in which we live today is very self-promoting. And unfortunately, even in the church today, we are not immune to that. Even in the church today, as we're hearing the messages of the world, even in the church today, as we're dealing with our own rotten old nature, the flesh, we still today can struggle with selfishness. The Bible tells us loud and clear that even in Christ with a new nature in him, we still have this old nature that we wrestle with that wars against us and against the very things of God. Romans chapter seven, the great apostle Paul summarized it when he said this about his own flesh. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. What Paul was saying loud and clear was this. There's a war that takes place in the life of a believer. We have the Holy Spirit within us with a new nature to guide us and to lead us and to direct us. But we also have this old nature that says, hey, you deserve a break. You can do what you want to. And these things are at odds with each other. We, as a result of that, must make sure that we are walking by the Spirit, that we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God and not living according to our flesh. We see the fleshly nature of the disciples here in Matthew 18 with that question. Jesus 
who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter nine is a, I'm sorry, Luke chapter nine is a parallel passage of scripture of this. And when you put that together, what we realize is this question was not a question out of thin air. This was a question that the disciples were not only thinking about, they were arguing about. As they made their way along the road, they began to argue with one another about which one of them they thought deserved to be best and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is a reminder to us loud and clear today that when we have conflict within our own flesh, we will certainly have struggles and conflicts with others. And oftentimes when conflicts come, we automatically assume it's the other person. It's their perspective. If they could just see it the way that I see it, we wouldn't even have these issues. But according to the book of James, the Bible says in James chapter four, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? We lust and we do not have, so we commit murder. We're envious and cannot obtain, so we fight and we quarrel. That's what's happening with the disciples. There's an argument that's taking place, division because of their selfish focus. Their selfishness, I believe, was fueled by two primary things. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can unfortunately see more of ourselves in the background of this text than we would probably care to admit. Two things fueled. Number one, their selfishness was fueled by envy. Their selfishness was fueled by envy. Envy is a feeling of discontentment or even covetousness with regard to another's advantages, another's successes, or even their possessions. More often in our culture today, we would use the word jealous. They were desiring of something that they thought someone else got. In their envy, they thought others were getting better treatment than themselves, and they did not like it. Think of that for just a moment. The Bible says here in Matthew 18, it was at this time that the disciples asked the question of Jesus. Well, anytime you read that statement, at this time, all you've got to do is go back and read the context to know what was going on at this time. Think of it for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 17, the passage of scripture begins with telling us about this incredible experience called the Mount of Transfiguration. There at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus did not invite all of the disciples to come with him. He invited those three of Peter, James, and John. They came closer and a little further with Jesus. And there, Jesus revealed his glory in an absolutely incredible way. But that incredible revelation was unique only to the three. He did not include the other nine in that moment. Then later on in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that a tax collector came to Peter and he tested Peter. He said, Peter, does your master pay his taxes? And so Peter went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, what are we gonna do about this? And Jesus pulled Peter aside in private. He said, Peter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Sea of Galilee. I want you to catch a fish. And when you catch a fish, there's gonna be money in his mouth. That's a good day of fishing, folks, okay? Dads, don't let that one get away. That's the one you want to catch. But he caught that fish, the Bible says, and sure enough, there was money. And the Bible says that Peter went and he paid their tax. Guess what? Of all the 12, only one experienced that miracle in a very firsthand way. We can understand in the background as they're starting to have rivalry and arguing amongst themselves. Wait a second. Jesus didn't let me experience that. I didn't get to go experience. I didn't get to have that thing. I didn't get to do it. And after I'll think of that for a moment. Of all of the disciples that we would think to include in that miracle, surely Matthew, the former tax collector, would be the one to take care of the taxes. But that was not the Lord's will. Surely Andrew, I mean, Andrew is Peter's brother. We could argue that Peter would not even be living for Jesus if it weren't for Andrew's invitation. Surely Jesus would include him, but, but no. The point is in this moment, 
There was rivalry and selfishness and division that stemmed because of the jealousy that they had towards one another. James 3.16 says it this way, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. I'm telling you today, if you allow jealousy to creep up in your heart and life, even in the body of Christ, it will cause a stumbling block for you and many others. Not only was their selfishness fueled by envy, but it was also fueled by pride. The Bible reminds us loud and clear that one of the things that God hates and God despises is a proud look. The idea of pride here is simply this. By their question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they are largely showing that they each felt they deserved better than what they are getting. That is seen in the way that they argue over who's going to be best. Almost like a, hey, I want to be the teacher's favorite. I want to be the, the best here. There's an argument. Why? Because they all thought they deserved to be the best. In other words, they had gotten so, if you will, insensitive to the wonderful blessing of grace to experience God's kingdom that they actually had come to the place where they believed that being in the kingdom of heaven apparently wasn't enough. It now has to be determined who's the greatest in this coming kingdom. But their pride is also seen not in the way they argue, but also in the way that they actually even just assumed that they would be in the kingdom of heaven. Their statement begins with the assumption, hey, since we're all going to be in your kingdom, which one of us is the greatest? But I want to remind us loud and clear, it can be very easy for us in our human nature to look at our religious works to look at our righteousness, all these things we're doing, and assume the same even as the disciples did. But Jesus had to take a moment to warn them, to caution them, and to instruct them that not everyone would be in the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, even in that moment, there was one of Jesus's own followers who would not be in the kingdom of heaven. In many ways, that one follower was like the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 18, the Bible tells that Jesus says, there were two men that went to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee that went to pray. And when he prayed, he said, oh God, I thank you for my religion. I thank you for my good works. I thank you that I'm righteous. I thank you that as I walk with you, I'm not like this poor old wicked sinner over here. The Bible says there was a poor old wicked sinner by the name of a publican, well known as a man who was crooked. He came to the same temple to pray. He came to talk to the same God, but he came in such brokenness and such humility, knowing his guilt. The Bible says he could not even lift his eye to heaven. And all he did was beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I say to you in Luke chapter 18, one man left the temple condemned and one man left forgiven. The man who left condemned was the man who trusted in his righteousness, who trusted in his religion, who trusted in his works and his ability. But the man who left forgiven was the man who trusted in God for his grace and his mercy. Luke chapter 18, verse nine says it this way. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The simple point is this. In our pride, we can assume the best of ourselves. But God reminds us in this. We can't assume that we're gonna be in the kingdom of God. We've gotta make sure we come with the humble confession and repentance as we see even in that of a child. Sadly, the disciples' selfishness is shockingly different than the example that was set before them. This is Jesus with the disciples. This is Jesus that they're asking this question of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus had already said loud and clear in Matthew 20, verse 28, but I come to tell you that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So clear was Jesus' sacrifice and selflessness that in Matthew chapter 17, just the previous chapter, the Bible says that Jesus was pouring his heart out to them and he was telling them the time is at hand. I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna lay my life down. I'm gonna be killed. I'm gonna give my life as a ransom for many. But the disciples responded, okay, Lord, but which one of us is gonna be greatest in your kingdom? If we're gonna build up children and young believers for the Lord Jesus Christ, we must begin by rejecting selfishness and selfish living. Number two, if you're still with me, would you say amen? amen. The second thing we must do if we're gonna build up children in the Lord is this. We must adhere to the Lord's requirements. We must adhere to the Lord's requirements. Jesus has words of instruction, words of demand, if you will. These are not options. These are not suggestions. These are not hope so. In fact, he tells us loud and clear in verses two and three, listen to these words. Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We must adhere to the Lord's requirement. The good news is that God has not left us without an answer. He's not left us in our sin. Like the publican who came to the temple that day, yes, he came in sin, he came in brokenness, he came in humility, but the wonderful truth is because God is a God of grace and mercy, when we come in humility and we come in repentance, we can experience forgiveness and we can experience grace. We can be delivered from the things that we brought even to the altar. But we, in order to do that, we must adhere to the Lord's requirements. What are they? Number one, we must be converted. Jesus says, unless you are converted. The word converted here literally means to be turned or to be changed. Now, this is not a flippant change, so to speak. Uh, just the other day, I had the opportunity to go get some ice cream at a local place here in town. And I went with a set thing in my mind. This is what I'm going to eat because that's what I was craving and I would not dare make myself suffer and get rid of a craving. So I was gonna go and meet that craving. So I went to the ice cream place. I had a set thing in mind. And then as I walked my way up towards the thing, I saw a flavor of the day. Oh, that sounds really good too. And then I got up to the checkout area and they said, well, have, have you tried this? And I said, no, I haven't. And I, the more I listened, I didn't know what to get. So you know what I did? I bought them all. No, not really, not really. But <laughs> the point is we can change our minds so quickly. The picture of conversion is of a radical turning, of a radical changing. We were going one direction, we stop, we turn from that to turn and go the proper direction. Here in this moment, what Jesus is largely saying is this. The only way to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is to, guys, listen, understand, if you're gonna be a part of this, you must be changed, you must be converted. You are going one direction in your selfish and sinful living. You're to turn from that and turn to the Savior, to love me, to live for me, and ultimately even to live like me in the context of your life. Perhaps that's the primary point in Luke chapter 18 with the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee came thinking he had nothing to change. He was doing good by himself. Look at all of his good works and all of his good righteousness. I come to the temple to pray all the time. But ultimately what Jesus was saying is this, but he left condemned because he didn't see his need for change. 
Not seeing his need for change, he didn't see his need even for God in that moment. I wanna remind us today that it's only God and his grace who can save us. It's only God and his mercy who can save us, but that can only happen as we humble ourselves, turn from our sin, and turn to him. They're arguing about who's gonna be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and what Jesus is largely saying is this. Unless you repent, you will not even be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Many of us think we'll be a part of the kingdom of heaven because we grew up in a religious home. Granddaddy was a preacher. Grandmama was a prayer warrior. Many of us think we'll be a part of the kingdom of heaven because we're a pretty good person. We try to help our neighbor in need and we give to good causes and we, we show up to work and we try to encourage people. Many of us think we're gonna get to heaven because we try to do enough good things to cancel out the bad things that we've known we've done. But the Bible reminds us loud and clear in Ephesians chapter two that we are saved by grace through faith not of works. It is a gift of God so that none of us would boast. My hope and prayer was loud and clear is for us to recognize we must be converted. We must be turning from our sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only must we be converted, we must also be childlike. Notice what Jesus says in this text. He makes no bones about it when he says in verse, verse three, you must be converted and become like children. If you don't do that, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think in this moment when the disciples ask the question, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they literally are anticipating that Jesus is going to pick one of the group, right? Like, like, like seriously, teacher, who's, my, who's your favorite? Who's greatest? Who, who's with you? Jesus, you remember what I did for you the other day? Yeah, I was with you. I'm your boy. That's right. You pick me, pick me, pick me. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He bypasses them all. Peter, James, and John, I know that you were with me on the mountain. I know I was revealing my glory, but please understand, that was according to the Father and for his purposes. P Peter, I know you were just fishing over there in the sea. You did exactly what I asked. That's right. But I'm not picking you. Thomas, I definitely ain't picking you. You know what Jesus does? He calls for a child. Come here, come here. Child, you get the, envision, the picture from the, the scripture from Mark chapter nine and from this past scripture. The child literally walks and stands beside Jesus. And then from Mark chapter nine, he picks up the child and puts the child on his lap. And he says to his own disciples, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not even be in the kingdom of heaven. Now to be clear, children are not perfect. They, we, were born with a sinful nature too. That's why as a child, nobody had to teach us how to be defiant or rebellious, take our siblings' toys, disobey our parents. Nobody, our sinful nature, we got that honest. But I do believe in that moment, there are several things about children that God is wanting us to see about their nature that help us in general to recognize what he's desiring of us in being childlike. For example, children are dependent. Remember in this moment, this child's likely doing its own thing. Now, we don't know how old this child is, but this child was definitely old enough to hear Jesus' words, understand Jesus' words, and respond to Jesus' words. Jesus calls for this child, and the child comes. Jesus takes the child and places the child in his, in his, on his lap, so to speak. Who called the child? Who lifted the child? Who spoke to the child? Who spoke to the disciples about the child? It was all Jesus. In other words, in this moment, Jesus is doing all the work the child is simply being dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is a reminder for us. If we're gonna be converted and be a part of the kingdom of heaven, we must recognize our dependence on the Lord. We must recognize just like the publican in the temple, I can't be saved, I can't be forgiven, I can't do this on my own, I don't even deserve to be here. So God, would you in your mercy and would you in your grace show me kindness and compassion, forgive me and cleanse me. Like the publican was fully dependent on the Lord, we also must be dependent on the Lord. Children are dependent, but children are also tender-hearted to the things of the Lord. Children naturally are sensitive to the things of the Lord and tender-hearted in their response. It is amazing to me how often that is very different between children and adults. I find it very interesting. Jesus called the child and the child said, uh-uh. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus called the child and the child delayed. Nope. Jesus called the child and the child made excuses. Mm -mm. Jesus called the child and the child said, wait a second, Jesus, let me figure out if it works on my schedule. No, that's not what he said. Jesus called the child and the child said, well, wait a second, what are the next 10 steps before I respond? That's not what happened. Jesus called the child, the child was sensitive to the call of the Lord and responded with obedience. I think in many ways children are dependent, yes, but they're also sensitive and tender-hearted in their response to the things of the Lord. I've illustrated that on numerous times in a humorous way with my upbringing. I remember being a kid. I was probably at that time, I believe, about 12 years old. I was playing baseball, and I remember at that time being so excited because my parents had told me that I could purchase a new baseball glove. I remember in that day, the fashion of the day was a black baseball glove. And I just thought if I got the black baseball glove, I was gonna be the next MLB shortstop. That's who I was gonna be. It always depended upon the color of my baseball glove, okay? And I remember my parents saying, you can get one, but you gotta save up for it. And I did everything I could to save up. And I remember being so excited. And finally, I had saved up enough money, $52. That was a lot of money at that time for a 12 year old. It's not as much today because of inflation, but work with me, okay? So, I remember being so excited about that baseball glove. And, and I, remember, I remember specifically on a Saturday night, counting all my money. I, held my, I kept my money in these trophies that were on my dresser. And I remember dumping them all onto my bed. And I remember counting the, this money. And I was so excited. I went to my parents. Can you please take me tomorrow to get that baseball glove? And my parents said, no. I was like, why not? Because it's Sunday. And we're not going shopping on a Sunday. Okay. We didn't do that. So I was like, all right, that's fine. I'll hide the money. I'm good to go. And Sure enough, Sunday night rolls around and I go to get my money because I'm gonna go after school to get this baseball glove and I'm looking everywhere and I realize my money's gone. I mean, gone. And I remember being frantic and wondering and being so upset. I remember going to my dad, accusing my dad. I thought he stole my money and asking my brother, boy, you better tell the truth. You know, what'd you do with my money? And finally, the angel of our house, my little sister, Candace who was being very quiet in this whole scene, my dad realized something suspicious about her behavior. So he went to Candace and he said, Candace, do you know anything about Matthew's money? Yes, sir. Well, where's Matthew's money? At church, she said. What do you mean at church? I put it in the offering. <laughs> what? Why did you put it in the offering? That devil child answered with this statement. Jesus told me to. Listen, there are spirits talking, but that was not the Holy Spirit of God, okay? The, 
But upon investigation, what my father found out was the previous week in Sunday school, the teacher had taught about giving the Lord and giving the Lord your best. She was sensitive to the things of the Lord, responsive to the things. She did miss a minor point. It was supposed to be her money and not mine. But the point still stands that children are sensitive to and responsive to the things of the Lord. And in that, there is an example for us as adults. Quit thinking we got to figure it all out. Quit making excuses, quit delaying, quit debating. When the Lord Jesus Christ convicts you to do something in faith, say yes to him. Children are like that, so we must make sure that we're converted and make sure that we are childlike in the way that we are sensitive to the things of the Lord and responsive to the things of the Lord. Number three, we must accept the Lord's encouragement. One of the things that I love about children in that is that not only are they dependent on the Lord and sensitive to things, they trust him. And I think it's in that moment that God is calling us to recognize, okay, there's a word of requirement. Unless you're converted and become like a child, you're not even gonna be in the kingdom of heaven. Wonderful truth of God's word is, it doesn't matter your age or life stage. If you're willing to put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can be 10, you can be 100, you can be five, you can be 105. As long as you are willing to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're forgiven and you're saved and you're cleansed. You will know with certainty that you have eternal life in the heavens, your home. But God then gives us a powerful picture of encouragement in verses four and five. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now there's a few things that he required of us, but now he encourages a few practical things. First, he's encouraging us that we should humble ourselves like a child. Now, I'm being funny with that illustration of my sister Candace, but the truth is when she understood the truth that what she had done was wrong, she didn't defend herself. She was broken about it. And she came to me apologizing. And I was like, go get my money back. Well, no. <laughs> my parents did buy me a baseball glove. I survived. Didn't make it to the MLB, but that's okay. I'm getting over it. But the point is we should humble ourselves like a child. Child in this moment in Jesus' arms is not like, hey, look at me. I'm so amazing. I am God's gift to you guys. Look at all that I've obtained in life. Look at my position, my power, my wealth, my academics, my knowledge, my wisdom. Look at me. No, a child doesn't do that. They're just happy to be in the presence of Jesus. And in the same way, we should humble ourselves like a child. Commentators Walvoord and Dyer say it this way. They should have been asking, how can I best serve the king rather than how can I best serve myself? The child in Jesus' arms was a graphic illustration of loving trust and immediate obedience in coming to him. Listen, seeking only the humble position of being loved. I think there's a powerful word of conviction there for the church today and that many in the context of the church come for what we can get, how we can be served, how someone might bless me. But those who have the heart of the Savior come with an understanding. No, how, how might I bless and serve the Savior and the body of Christ that he's called me to? We must humble ourselves like a child. Number two, we should help children in Jesus' name. 
Verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, when it comes to children, we can either help them or we can hurt them. What Jesus is largely saying in this moment is this, don't reject them, don't ignore them, don't overlook them, don't forget them, but instead receive them in my name. Care for them, serve them, share with them. Point them ultimately to me that all of your actions and your attitudes, all of these things would be done in my name. And what does he say loud and clear? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus is not teaching salvation through our treatment of children, but what he's largely saying is simply this. Our treatment of and ministry to children is a barometer that indicates the nature of our relationship with Christ. In other words, when you serve children, when you care for children, when you take time for children, you're not just blessing them, you're blessing the Lord through your actions of care and attention. My prayer for us at Crosslink is that in every aspect of that, whether that be the nursery or the preschool or the larger kids' link, the elementary age, even through our student ministry and beyond, that our actions are saying loud and clear, we care for young people and we are welcoming them, receiving them, ministering to them in Jesus' name. The final point, if you're still with me, would you say amen? amen. Is this, if we're gonna build up children in the Lord, we must avoid causing offense. We come to the final point of the message, and frankly, I think it is probably the most sobering. One of the most graphic images, I believe, of the entire New Testament is found in these verses, verses six through 10. Frankly, they're not politically correct. Frankly, there are aspects of it in our culture that we're almost shocked that Jesus said it. But I do hope that when we consider the weight of some of the evils and the harm that is done to children, even in our day, that we get just a glimpse and a grasp of how Jesus views that evil. Listen to the statement, verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Two things I want you to consider, and we'll close our message. Number one is a word of consideration. There is something here that Jesus is calling us to really consider and, and no pun intended, he's calling us to consider the weight of. Think of it for just a moment. Jesus is within, in this moment, 100 yards of the Sea of Galilee. The region beyond their fishing in the sea was largely known for their grain and the meals that they had. The largest and heaviest stone in the meals was a millstone. It was so heavy by hundreds of pounds that it could only be turned by the strength, most commonly turned by the strength of a donkey. Jesus looks and he says this powerful and sobering statement. But whoever offends by your actions, your words, your stumbling block, whoever offends one of these younger, weaker brothers or sisters in Christ, even one of these children, it will have been better for him that a millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown over there in the sea. That is a powerfully graphic picture that frankly to some would be absolutely offensive, but what he is largely saying to them is this. Physical death 
is nothing compared to the spiritual judgment one will receive when they offend and provide stumbling blocks for these little ones. Surely in a world that is opposed to the things of God like we live in today, there are inevitably stumbling blocks. When we live in a culture today that frankly will take the blessings and gifts of God and will twist it for their own glory and purposes, stamp on it a rainbow and call it pride, surely we live in a world where there are stumbling blocks. But Jesus' word of warning is this, but woe to the man who brings these stumbling blocks. He's calling us for just a moment to consider the weight of our actions and our attitudes, the things that we accept and condone and lead others to. Which brings us finally to a word of examination. Verses eight and nine. So if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pick it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. It'd be easy for us to sit here on a Sunday morning and say, man, you know what? There are, there's a lot of stumbling blocks in the world today. But Jesus calls us for a moment away from the world, away from the things we're seeing on the television, and he calls us for a moment to pause and examine, examine our own life. Is there anything in me that's causing a stumbling block? Anything with my hands, anything with my feet, with the things that I do and the places that I go, anything with my eyes, anything with my ears, is there anything in me that's causing a stumbling block for me? Because if that's left unattended, it will provide a stumbling block for our children and for those younger brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, now to be clear, before you leave here today and go do something extreme, I think we need to consider for a moment what Jesus is and isn't saying. See, the issue at hand in that moment that Jesus was addressing is the issue that needs to be addressed today. And that is that largely what he's describing are spiritual issues. You can't fix spiritual problems with physical solutions. For example, you can take a thief's hands, and in some countries of the world they do, but that doesn't take away his covetous, jealous desire for things that doesn't belong to him. Even a man without feet can go places in his heart and his mind that are not pleasing to God. So what is Jesus really saying? I think an old Bible teacher by the name of Warren Wiersbe, I sure like him. I think he summarizes the best. Here's what he says. Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies. For harming our physical bodies can never change the spiritual condition of our hearts. Rather, he was instructing us to perform spiritual surgery on ourselves, repenting of and removing anything that causes us or others to stumble. You know what he's saying? I think what he's largely saying is this. If we're going to build up others in the Lord, we need to first and foremost make sure that we have been converted and that we've repented of our sins. We know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. But then as we walk with him, we begin to realize we're not just living for ourselves. Our life is to be lived for the glory of God and the good of others. And the closer we walk to Jesus, 
the more the Holy Spirit shows us, the more he convicts us, the more he leads us and the more he guides us. And as he does, he begins to reveal things in our life. Sometimes he reveals sins that we need to confess and turn from. Lay them at the Lord's feet and leave them there. Sometimes he he brings things to light that may not be sins, but they may be unwise. Oh, oh, we've got the right in Christ to do this, but it's not profitable or beneficial for my children or for these other younger brothers and sisters in Christ. And in those moments, instead of saying, wait a second, it's my freedom, it's my life, I can do what I want to do, I'm free in Christ. No, no, no. In those moments, remembering that our life is to live for the glory of God and the good of others, we're to willingly lay them down so that our life is a stepping stone for the growth of others for the glory of God and not a stumbling block. So here's the question. We'll close. Is your life a stepping stone of growth in the Lord Jesus Christ or is it providing stumbling blocks? My hope and prayer is that every single one of us will take a moment today and examine, Lord, Is there anything I need to repent of? Is there anything I just need to release and let go of so that our life is fully lived for your glory and the good of others? Let's pray together all over the building. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for your love for us, your mercy for us. Thank you, Lord, for the kindness that you show us. Lord, there are some sobering words of warning in this passage of scripture, but there's also powerful words of hope because it reminds us that we can be delivered. We can be set free. We can be forgiven. Lord, help me not to see my children or or younger brothers and sisters in Christ watching and learning. Help me not to see that as a burden or as a pressure, but help me to see that as a privilege, as an opportunity. Lord, may we each live our life, even as the Apostle Paul, that we could look to others in our life and say to them, By your grace, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, we're not going to do that perfectly. But where you reveal the imperfections, may we be quick to run to you to seek your grace and your forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would move right now in a powerful way in each of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.